0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover in this audio James chapter 5 verses 13 through 20. We'll finish up the chapter and finish up the book of James. Our context is this. In the very first part of chapter 8 verses 1 through 12 we see James giving warnings to the evil rich and exhortations to the Hebrew Christians to be patient in their suffering, most likely suffering caused by the evil rich. Now at the end of the of the book, James is engaged in a series of serial exhortations, and the connection between these exhortations is not immediately obvious in many cases. They're kind of miscellaneous exhortations. There might be some slight connection, so we're not going to worry about the context too much. We're going to look at this as a self-contained section here, verses 13 through 20, which I've entitled The Prayer of Faith. We start here with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. The suffering is probably connected to the persecution that was going on with the Hebrew Christians being persecuted by the non-believing Jewish Christians right before AD 70. This is probably in the 40s AD when James wrote this book, and there was a lot of persecution going on. And in fact, he mentioned about the rich people, don't they murder you, don't they don't pay you wages when they're due, and all that kind of stuff he's mentioned previously. And so the suffering could be because of those persecution of the evil rich people, evil rich Jewish Christians, uh, non-Christians back then. And so James says, hey, you suffer, don't start a revolution. Don't get angry. Don't get bitter. Pray. Pray that you would get through the suffering, through the trial. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Now, this shows it's possible to be cheerful when there's suffering all around us. Now, it doesn't say that the person that is cheerful is the one who is suffering. but I imagine it's hard to be cheerful when you're being persecuted and having your property taken away from you and being thrown in jail, as the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, shows that was happening to these Hebrew Christians. But if you, it's possible to be cheerful in the midst of all the suffering around. I say that especially. That means a lot to me now because right now in America, everybody thinks America's dying, which it is. And we wonder if how long it's going to last. or As Merle Haggard put it once in another time of national crisis, are the good times really over for good? Stop rolling downhill like a snowball headed for hell. Stand up for the flag and for the Liberty Bell. Well, the flag and the Liberty Bell are holding together too much, holding the country together too much these days because we've rejected God and flags and Liberty Bells aren't going to save us from our sins. And so everybody, Christians that I know are, are a little bit depressed. Okay? But you know what? You should sing praises in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the persecution of Christians, which is coming on the on, on the church in America Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Pray and sing praises. Can't go wrong with that. James 5 verse 14. James continues, Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. Now this verse and the next verse are two of the most difficult scriptures that I've ever dealt with in in the Bible, so we're going to take some time going through this. First of all, let's ask the question: Why anoint a sick person in church with uh, olive oil? What's the point of the oil? Well, then I've studied Bible points out that oil was used medicinally in the ancient world. It was one of the best known of ancient medicines. It was referred to. Oil was referred to as, uh, with, uh, the healing properties of oil was referred to by Philo, by Pliny, by Galen, famous ancient figures. We also see this in the scriptures, Isaiah one six from the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured, wounds, welts, and festering sores not cleansed, bandaged or soothed with oil. So apparently that was the practice back then is to pour oil on wounds. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke ten thirty four, he, he, the good Samaritan, went over to him and bandaged his wounds, the man who was beaten up by robbers, pouring on olive oil and wine. So Olive oil was put on wounds back then. And it had healing properties. The wine, incidentally, is, makes sense because it had alcohol in it, and alcohol kills germs. But anyway, so olive oil is the perfect symbol for healing. Now, Jesus used oil as a symbol for healing, too, Mark 6:13, And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick people with olive oil and healing them. Now, the next question that arises is, should we do this today? Well, my first response to that question is, well, why wouldn't we? I mean, don't we use the pattern of the New Testament church as our pattern, or do we? Well, let's see. Well, the early church had plural elders. Do we No, we have one elder? The early church met in homes. What do we do? Well, we meet in ecclesiastical warehouses and call them temples. The early church was totally separate from the state. Oh, look at all through Europe, through the Middle Ages. Protestant and Catholic. Combination of church and state. I could go on and on and on about how we don't pay any attention to the early church. Well, that's the way they did it back then, but we're different now. Well, Okay, so the question is, is should, we, should we call for the elders of the church and have people know it with all? Now, here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Quote, now, that the miraculous gift of healing has been withdrawn for the most part to use the sign where the reality is wanting would be unmeaning superstition. So Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, no, we shouldn't imitate what the early church did because that would be superstitious because we don't have any gift of healing anymore. That is such idiotic nonsense. Instead of removing the oil, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, maybe we should recover the healing. And then the sign would have, would correspond to the reality of healing. So demonic religions offer healing all the time in the modern world. And so we say, well, somebody comes to us, sorry, go in peace, be warm, be filled. i never forget the time I was in a debate with John Gerstner, a bulldog of a Calvinist theolo- theologian when I was at seminary. And there was a, woman that was sick in his church or he was filling in for somebody else I think it was but anyway this woman was sick and she came to him says I need to get healed and so the good cessationist that he was the good reformed cessationist that Mr. Gerstner was he said no 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 he wasn't gonna pray for her and so the woman left the reformed church and went to become a Christian scientist a, a heresy and so Dr. Gerstner was trying to say, see there, people that seek for healing end up being cultists. And, I, and so I raised my hand kind of innocently and I said, well, has, has, well, actually, this was after a long argument that he had with me in class in which he was sweating bullets and which there was a little bit of yelling going on. It was quite uncomfortable. I'll never forget it. But I stopped the argument by very simply saying, Dr. Gerstner, I said, has the thought ever occurred to you that because you didn't offer healing to this woman, that she's now going to hell because you didn't offer to pray for her. Ooh, I wouldn't have done that normally, but he was eating my lunch, kind of yelling at me, you know. And he deserved it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mind saying he deserved what I said because it's true. Uh, is that what we're going to say? Oh, yes. All the all the fake religions, all the Buddhists, they can promise healing, but we can't. I could, if I could tell you how many times I heard about people getting saved in China because of miraculous healing happened all the time, but not in America, not in Reformed churches, because we. The gift of healing has been withdrawn for the most part, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown idiotically say. So, to answer the question, yeah, we should do it today. Now notice who's supposed to pray for the sick person, the elders of the church, plural. Not the pastor, the elders, plural. That was the situation in all the early churches, because in all the early churches, the elders were plural. It was not just one elder, one pastor. The Roman Catholics interpret this as one of the elders. That's not what it says. It says the elders, not one of the elders. James 5.15. James continues. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right, now this is the the difficult verse. So let's get rid of some easy stuff first. The prayer of faith of faith will save. It's not the oil that saves. It's not superstition. The oil is just a symbol, as Jameson and Fawcett and Brown says. It's a symbol. It is not the reality. So, it's the prayer that saves. So, when you want to see somebody sick in church, first thing, you've got to pray for them. Second thing, it says the prayer of faith. Whose faith? Well, faith, of course, is trust and belief. Whose faith? The elders praying for the sick person? Is it the faith of the sick person himself, or is it both? Well, John Gill says is both, the prayer of the elders and prayer of the sick person. I agree with that totally. The prayer of faith will save. That word save is so save, future for sozo, which means to save, which can also mean to heal. So it's kind of interesting. Salvation is closely connected to healing. Sozo is like the salvation of the body, healing. We also can say, you know, God heals a sick soul. He saves them. So the body and soul are closely related. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. Now, this is where the difficulty comes in. The prayer of faith will save. there's no limiting condition on the healing. The prayer of faith will say, that sounds like 100%, it's going to happen 100% of the time. And that's where the trouble is, because you know as well as I do, that people are not saved 100% of the time when you pray for them. They are saved a lot. I mean, there's lots of healing. I should say saved, I meant healed. Lots of healing is taking place when sick people pray for, but 100% of the time? Well, this is what Albert Barnes, the commentator, says about that. This must be understood, as such promises are everywhere, with this restriction, that they will be restored to health if it shall be the will of God, if he shall deem it for the best. It cannot be taken in the absolute and unconditional sense, for then, if these means were used, the sick person would always recover, no matter how often he might be sick, and he need never die. The design is to encourage them to the use of these means with a strong hope that it would be effectual. It may be fairly be inferred from the statement that there would be cases in large numbers where these means would be attended with this happy result, and two, that there was so much encouragement to do it that it would be proper in any case of sickness, so make use of these means. Well, I sort of come to that conclusion with Albert Barnes. I was involved in the charismatic movement when I was in college, and I heard this all the time, God will always hear you 100%, boom. And I noticed that uh, nobody could live up to that. And I'm always suspicious of people who are preaching something that can't live up to it. And then when I hear things like, it's never God's will for you to be sick. Well, I know that ain't true. God can use sickness. I heard this over and over again. God God doesn't use sickness for anything. Well, God uses all kinds of evil. Not the charismatics were right that sickness was evil. Unfortunately, a lot of times you listen to reform people, you think that sickness is a good thing. Well, if sickness is such a good thing, why do we go to the doctor? Maybe we should ask for more sickness. Maybe we should go around and cough on people during the COVID-19 panic. Because, hey, if you get COVID-19, you might turn to God. You might learn more about faith and, and, and affliction. So let's just get everybody sick. Well, that's idiotic, too. There are two extremes here on this issue. Now, I remember reading just recently, in the last year or two, about a the head of the Assembly of God Church, which is a Pentecostal denomination that does believe in healing. And he said, I can't explain why some people don't get healed. He said, but I believe in healing. I remember seeing a film done by some reform people. Of course, they're constantly blasting, quote-unquote, faith healers, as they say that with disdain. And after they quoted Justin Peters, who for the umpteenth time talked about how Benny Hinn was a crook. Justin Peters has cerebral palsy and Benny Hinn didn't heal him. And so, and I believe that Benny Hinn's a crook myself, you know. So I think that's fine. That's fine, Justin. Go after Benny Hinn. But hey, why don't you talk about Jesus healing some people every now and then? Why don't you do that? Well, this film, which is called The uh, American Gospel, done by Reform people. After they blasted all the quote-unquote faith healers, they then interviewed Matt Chapman, the Reform pastor out in Texas, who had brain tumor, was expected to die, and they had to shave his head, put a big, cut his skull open, and cut the tumor out. And somehow he lived. And he was saying, you know, he said there are two extremes on this. He said there's some people that say, oh, it's automatic, you're gonna get healed, and the others say, okay. Go in peace, be warm, be filled, Matt. i pray for you. Please heal him if it be thy will. Boom and go. And he noticed the, in his own personal life as he faced that horrible sickness, he noticed the two extremes. And I've noticed them too. It's a difficult thing. And what really makes it difficult is all of what Barnes says about this must be understood as praying in, in the will of God. That ain't what James says. He says the prayer of faith will save the sick person. Okay, so I have trouble with that, the way James put it. But I I think Barnes is right, because if you think about it, every prayer is subject to the condition, if it be the will of God. How many times you pray for unsaved people, and a lot of them don't get saved. But do you go up and say, I'm praying for John Doe. God, please save him, if it be thy will. We don't ever do that, because we can't stand the thought of somebody going to hell. Well, I'm going to tell you something. If you're praying for somebody to be saved that's not in the elect, he ain't going to get saved. Same thing for sickness. If God has a reason to keep this person sick, Maybe because of unconfessed sins, as James is going to talk about in the middle in, in a minute or whatever. He's not going to get healed because every prayer. Oh, God, let me marry this person. Well, if it ain't in God's will for you to marry that person, you ain't going to marry him or marry her. You're not going to do it. So, but at least uh Albert Barnes here says that there would be cases in large numbers where when people were anointed with oil by the elders, they would get well. Large numbers would be attended with this happy result. You know. Just last week, at church, I go to a, a Reformed Baptist church that's full of Reformed people. They don't know anything about healing except that healings done by a bunch of crooked faith healers. You know, that typical attitude. And one of the elders got up and, and said, We've been praying. We've been praying during our prayer request for a guy that was a friend of his. Nobody else in the church knew him. So it's not like you know when you don't know somebody, it's hard to really get into it with an urgent prayer of faith. And he prayed, and we prayed, and... The guy had stage four cancer, and the doctor said, "You know, there's no cancer here anymore. this is miraculous i don't I've never seen this happen before I, you know I, I thought to myself, "Hey, this sounds like a charismatic meeting where people testifying are getting healed. Folks, healing does take place. I could give you lots and lots of miraculous healings done by friends of mine or done by me I, I got a, one case for me, and I don't pray for healing very much, but I know that miraculous healing take place today. That doesn't mean that everybody's healed, but it means that there's." enough healing going on that it's worth praying about. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. Let me read what Adam Clark says about restoring people to health in these cases. There often are cases where faith and prayer are both ineffectual because God sees it will be prejudicial to the patient's salvation to be restored, and therefore all faith and prayer on such occasions should be exerted on this ground, quote, If it be most for thy glory and the eternal good of this man's soul, let him be restored. If otherwise, Lord, pardon, purify him and take him to thy glory. Well, that's true. But I'm going to tell you, a lot of people use that and hide behind it to cover their lack of faith because James says the prayer of faith shall raise him up. So it's what Clark said. It's beautiful, isn't it? But is that what James actually said? He never said that. He didn't say, well, God, if it be for thy glory, let him die. I don't see that in the prayer. Now, God, I, I think it's logical that God would not save somebody that is that for some reason that would be to that person's detriment. But, you know, sickness is a terrible thing. And I always pray. hell's a terrible thing. I always pray for get people to get saved. Sickness is a terrible thing. I always pray for people to get healed. I don't sit there and say, oh, if it's be thy will, God, you know, he, well, why wouldn't it be God's will to heal somebody that's suffering and miserable? Oh, I know you can give me all the testimonies about how he. In fact, I just saw one about a woman who was an atheist or a non-believer and she was into worldly stuff and she got some kind of weird disease and she couldn't she had to have food mainlined into her stomach and she was a godly woman and she loved Jesus she had, she was on oxygen and she was a mess she said I'd much rather be like this than when I was before when I was healthy and didn't believe in God well of course but that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to heal her now God used the sickness to bring her to, to, to Jesus? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want a healer now. I really think that if we would pay more attention to healing instead of why people don't get healed, we might be a little bit more positive about it. First of all, in verse 15, you got to pray. Second of all, it's got to be a prayer of faith. Let's see what, what um, well, I don't have it with me. It's a great quote from John Gill. I'll get to it in just a minute about the, the prayers of faith that aren't prayers, the prayers that aren't prayers of faith. Anyway, it's got to be a prayer. You got to pray for people. You can't just say, well, be sick. No, you got to pray for me. You got to have the prayer of faith. Then it says, if he has committed sins, that doesn't mean he, he absolutely necessarily has committed sins, but if his sickness is a result of sins, he will be forgiven and the Lord will restore him to health." So you see how the physical and the spiritual are closely tied together. But not necessarily, because it says if he has committed sins, somebody might be sick just because somebody coughed on him with COVID-19. There's no sins. He just got sick. We live in a sinful world. Now, when James says if he has committed sins, he's not referring to the fact of sins in general. Everybody's committed sins, so the, the if there wouldn't make any sense. But it's referring to any particular sin which might have caused the recent sickness. And in fact, that recent sickness might be a chastisement for that particular sin. As Adam Clark says, quote, For for being the cause of the affliction, it is natural to conclude that if the effect be to cease, the cause must be removed. I mean, even secular people will tell you, you know, stress and bitterness will screw up your body. The soul is closely related to the body. Notice how the healing of the soul and the body are closely related, because the forgiveness of sins happens at the same time as the restoration of health. Same Greek word, so-so. Let's see this in Scripture, Isaiah 33, verse 24. And none there will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. The sin and sickness and iniquity tied together in Isaiah. Matthew 9, 2 through 5. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Seeing their faith, there's faith. Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said among themselves, He's blaspheming, but perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? So Jesus connected healing and sick sins, or sickness and sins, right there. Again, it's not universal. It's the, every sickness does not have a particular sin behind it, but they're often associated. John 5, verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore. You are well, physically. Do not sin anymore. Oh, your soul is clean now. Don't dirty it up with sin. So that something worse doesn't happen to you. So you see, Jesus connected sin with being, well, I, who was this? I think that was the the man, let's see who that was. The man at the Sheep Gate, the Bethesda Gate, the, the, the Pool of Bethesda. And this verse right here that we're getting ready to read, and the next verse connects sins and sickness, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So let's go to James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Again, confess, confess what? Sins in general, no. Confess the sins that's behind the sickness, most probably. Confess your sins to one another. It doesn't say confess your sins to the elders of the church. Contrary to the Roman Catholics who have to have a priest that you can confess to. Confess your sins to one another. It takes close and open relationships with fellow church members to do this because people don't like to confess their sins. I don't and you don't. But hey, if you have sinned and if there's some question that the sin is behind the sickness that you're experiencing, it might be a good idea to say, man, you know, I mean, an easy case of this, let's say you're doing dope and the drugs have wrecked your immune system. Well, hey, there's an obvious thing. You need to say, hey, I'm sorry I did the dope. I sinned. Or I got an STD. Well, you know, I went out with a prostitute and she got me sick. Well, hey, you need to confess the sins of going to the prostitute and then pray about getting healed. Notice that it's the urgent prayer of a righteous person that's very powerful in its effect. What does urgent mean? Well, John Gill says urgent is not a perfunctory, formal, memorized, rote, and ritualistic prayer. By golly, it's getting down on your knees, burying your head into the ground and crying out to God, please God heal this person. And I remember my niece, I was on a trip out in the West. I was in Bryce Canyon in Utah with my wife. And I get a call that my niece who grew up next to me was, I think she was a teenager, young college kid at the time. I don't remember. She was fighting for her life with a brain hemorrhage. And I got on my face in that motel room in Bryce Canyon, Utah. And I prayed like I have never prayed before. Oh, God, please don't let her die. Please don't let her die. I know what an urgent prayer is. I was forced to it. And she did, by the way. She lived, and she's living a perfectly happy life now. Married with a couple kids, even though she's diabetic, by the way, but she's got two kids. She's doing well. She's a dedicated Christian. She could have died. And I tell you, I know the difference between an urgent prayer and a ritualistic prayer. Now, I'm not saying all urgent. Again, I'm not saying all urgent prayers answered. I urgently prayed for the little girl in my neighborhood who died at 26, a fantastic missionary with wonderful testimony. I said, oh, God, please don't let her die. And I remember, I remember, um, Random. I, I hate to say I did this, but I opened the book, the Bible, my Bible, up randomly. I was pretty distressed emotionally. I mean, this girl grew up in our neighborhood. She was friends with my kids. You know, it was terrible. So I put my finger down randomly in the Bible, and I know you're not supposed to do that, but I did it under pressure. And it was at the end of the book of Job. It's where God's telling Job, "Who are you? Did you make the heavens? Who are you to ask me these things?" <laughs> because I was asking, "Why, God? Why did you let this happen?" And that little girl died. That young woman. She was 26. She died. But oh the people that came to the Lord because of it. Even a book been written about her. Fantastic young girl. I hold her in awe to this day, I mean. So urgent prayers aren't going to work every time, but it's that's that goes into the equation here. We gotta pray, we gotta pray with faith, and we gotta pray urgently. And fourth, we need to confess our sins to one another if sins might be behind the sickness. We go now to James five, seventeen and eighteen. James is going to give us an Old Testament example about praying with faith. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly. There's urgently, earnestly. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now, Elijah is said by James to be a man with a nature like ours. What he means is he puts his pants on one leg at a time like the rest of us. He might have been a great prophet, but hey. He was a human being. And if Elijah can pray in faith, so can we. That was the point of saying he was, has a nature like ours. He wasn't some kind of supernatural god that could pray in faith. He was a normal human being like us. So that means that if you can pray in faith just like Elijah did. So think about that next time you have doubts. Here's what Gil says about Elijah. He was subject to hunger and weariness and was fed by ravens and by the widow of Zarephath and by an angel and he was subject to reproach affliction and persecution being charged by ahab as a troubler of israel and persecuted by jezebel who sought his life he was a moral a mortal man and liable to death and requested to die yeah he, you know his emotions got so low he wanted to die but he was a man of faith now what's my point here is that your emotions can go haywire and you can get very depressed and very discouraged but you can still pray in faith because your faith doesn't have anything to do with your emotions. Now, that's easy. What I just said is easy. But I'll tell you, when your emotions get down, it is hard to pray in faith. But we need to discipline ourselves and say, I'm not relying on my emotions. I'm relying on God. Now, three and a half years, three and a half years, three years and six months. That's an interesting number, isn't it? Times, times, and half a times. Times, times, and half a time. Three and a half. That's a typical symbol of woe and disaster because it's half of seven. Of course, the number seven is the divine number of perfection, as we see all through the Old Testament. And uh, a long drought would fit the symbol of woe and disaster pretty good. That's why it was three and a half years. The NIV study Bible says this was probably meant to be a round number, and that makes sense given that three and a half is half of seven, and is symbolic. Some people who have a lot of time on their hands sit down and try to calculate the three and a half years when when it started, when the when the drought started and when it ended, based on the Old Testament. I'm not going to go into that. Jesus referred to this situation about Elijah in Luke 4.25, but I, Jesus speaking, say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land. Now, we see here that Elijah prayed twice. He prayed first time that it not rain, and second time that it do rain. We read about this in 1 Kings 17 and 18. I'll give you some highlights. 1 Kings 17:1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, "As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command." Ooh, that took guts. Tell a king, it's not going to be rain in his kingdom. 1 Kings 18:41 through 46. First Kings seventeen was when he prayed that there be no rain, and now we're going to see an implication that he pr- prayed that there what there would be rain three and a half years later. First Kings eighteen forty one through forty six. Elijah said to Ahab, "Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm." So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees, and that's where he prayed because he's bowed to the ground, put his face between his knees. He was praying. Then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back. On the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming from the sea. And what do we see there? The principle of importunate prayer, of persistent prayer. Pray, pray, pray. You don't see the answer. That doesn't mean that God is not going to answer. It just means he wants you to pray some more. The prayer of faith, urgent prayer. Then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chat ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. And a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So, there's another factor we need to put into the pot here. You pray urgently, and you pray with patience, because Elijah had to pray seven times before that rain came. You might have to pray more than one time somebody's sick. Keep praying. Don't get tired. Pray. Pray. I remember... When I was in the charismatic movement and was first presented with divine healing, I had this idea that I could just close my eyes and pray and bang, I'd be instantly well. Well, that's not even true. I mean, Paul the Apostle told, was it Trophimus? Trophimus, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. And so obviously there wasn't an instantaneous healing. You got to pray. You got to pray. Now remember, James is using Elijah as an example. Elijah prayed earnestly, but he didn't just pray one time. He prayed seven times. Important prayer. Knock, 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 knock. Keep on knocking if somebody's sick. James, in fact, mentions here, verse 18, he, Elijah, prayed again. Prayed again. Didn't just pray one time. He prayed earnestly, and he prayed again. We go now to James 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, this seems like kind of a sudden shift from praying for faith for sick people. So I'm not going to try to connect it up with what went previously. Now, if any among you strays from the truth, who are those among you that strays from the truth? Are these Christian brothers or are they false professors of Christ who say they're Christians but are not? The NIV Study Bible takes or at least suggests the option that these among you who strayed from the truth, these strayers from the truth, are non-Christians who merely profess Christianity. I have trouble with that. John Gill says that no, these straying Christians are sinning Christians who need to be restored. Remember all the times that James refers to the readers of his epistle as brothers. In fact, right here in verse 19, my brothers, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth. Does that sound like a non-Christian, hypocritically professing pseudo-Christian to you? Not to me, it doesn't. John Gill says, this strayer is to be understood of one who has embraced the Christian religion. I think that's right. But now that presents another question. If this person who strays from the truth comes back, his life is saved from death. Oh, but how can a Christian be saved from death since he's not going to hell to start with? Because Christians cannot lose their salvation. Well, if this person who strayed was a Christian, that death can't mean spiritual death, separation from God forever. It has to be temporal death, physical death. Here's a passage in 1 Corinthians 11.30 that connects sickness and death. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. They were abusing the Lord's Supper, the Holy Meal. So, in that example, if someone in Corinth had turned the Corinthians away from abusing the Lord's Supper, then that person would have kept the Corinthian sinner. He would have, have saved the Corinthian soul from death. Physical death, not eternal death. So anyway, this verse is not going to be used to in the can you lose your salvation debate. There are many in Calvinist debate there. This verse can go either way. I mean, if I'm a Calvinist trying to, to defend it, I've would i could, I've got two ways to go. I could say, well, if anyone among you strays from the truth, that's a non-Christian who's saved from hell, saved from death, saved from going to hell. But he's a non-Christian. He gets saved. Or if, if I say, think, and I think this is more likely, this brother is a Christian brother who strays from the truth, then... If I lead him back toward the truth, I save his life, not from hell, but from a physical death. And I will cover, that means I will negate the effect of a multitude of sins. And that is not directly, but I'm not a priest. The restorer is not a priest, but it means indirectly because the restorer leads the restored to pray. And Jesus then forgives him. And so then a multitude of sins are covered when the guy confesses his sins. And the whole point of all this is that we are, are our brother's keepers when it comes to sins. If if a brother opens his life to you and he is accountable to you and he wants to, to please Jesus, he will listen when you say, brother, I think you need to stop doing this. I heard a great story about a, a guy who had a prophetic gift and called up this pastor friend of his and says, I don't know why I'm saying to this. I've just, I've, I've, the Lord has told me to tell you that you're about to make a big mistake. It could ruin your life. And the pastor hung the phone up. He didn't say it at the time. He called him back later and told him he was just making plans to run off with his church secretary to have a little love nest, a little weekend tryst. And of course, that would have ruined his life as soon as the congregation found out about it, as soon as his wife finished plugging him full of holes with a Rossi Special 38 revolver. So that prophet saved that man's life. Didn't save him from going to hell, but saved him from ruining his life on earth. One small point here and we'll finish up the sins. What sins are being talked about when James says whoever turns a sinner from the er error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Cover a multitude of whose sins? Well, I just assume it's the person that was straying from the truth. And Jameson Fawcett Brown agrees with that, but It could be covers the sins of the one who's restoring. In other words, hey, I saved somebody from sinning, and therefore my sins are covered. Well, that sounds like works righteousness to me. I do something good, and God will cover my sins. I think God covers your sins because of the blood of Jesus, not because you led somebody from straying from the truth. So it's the multitude of sins of the the strayer that get covered. Now let me finish James chapter 5 by summarizing faith, which might eventuate in healing, Seven things that go into this prayer. First of all, we're supposed to pray, not just let it go. Second of all, we're supposed to pray in faith, not pray in doubt. The third thing we're supposed to do is we're supposed to pray with persistence, to pray with patience. Even as Elijah did when he prayed that it would start raining again, he prayed seven times. The person who's doing the prayer should be righteous. The prayer of a righteous man affecteth much. The prayer should be urgent. The urgent prayer of a righteous man, man, it should not be formalistic or rote or memorized. The sixth thing is that the sick person should confess his sins if necessary. And the seventh thing is we should go to the elders to pray for those who are sick amongst us. I believe that if we would look at the whole picture here and do what James said we should do, I bet we'd see a lot more healing. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished James chapter 5. And we have finished the book of James. In our next audio, we're going to embark upon a discussion of the book of 1 Peter. I hope you can tune in for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.